Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, May the 12th, 2021. My name is Tom Hollingsworth and as always, I am here bringing you all of the interesting things happening in the news and maybe some storage stories too. And for those, I've brought on my friend and co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, thanks for being here. Man, networking people know as much about storage as Americans know about Canadians. A or something. All right. We've got a good lineup of stories. There's some interesting things going on in the world. And I think we want to dive right in by kicking off with an interesting piece of news about some acquisitions. So analytics startup Lightstep is going to be taking a trip over to ServiceNow. According to a blog post from founder Ben Siegelman, the company is joining the service juggernaut to help expand capabilities on both sides. Lightstep, in the blog post that they announced the acquisition, recognized that in order to build out their offering to include more observability for modern site reliability engineering and DevOps workflows, would need to spend several years building all of that out. And when they looked around the industry, they saw that ServiceNow already had that capability and could benefit from the augmented analytics capabilities that the ex-Googlers would be bringing to the team. Terms of the deal were not announced. Timelines are also not announced. The blog post from Siegelman was a little light on details and it has the community wondering, Stephen, what's the take on this? Well, it's always hard to read the tea leaves on these announcements. Uh, you know, you never know whether it's an acquisition that needed to happen or whether it's an acquisition that wanted to happen. I sure hope it was one that wanted to happen because frankly, uh, the Lightstrap crew was a really cool bunch of dudes. We went in there uh, for uh, Cloud Field Day back in August of 2018, uh, visited them in San Francisco, and it was just a great, great, cool company. Their presentation was fantastic, and we really enjoyed it. So, frankly, I hope that it's a good return on investment. That being said, uh, I did uh, take a moment to look it up, and Lightstep did take uh let's see, Series C, a total of $70 million in, which is not an insanely huge amount of money. So unless it was an absolute fire sale, which I find hard to believe considering the, the, the it was a good product and a good team, um, I'm guessing this was probably a successful exit. So let's call it a successful exit, but here's a plea. Um, those of you out there who are in startups and getting acquired by, oh, I don't know, ServiceNow or Dell or IBM or whoever it is, um, maybe tell us how much the acquisition price was because it helps us to kind of get our heads around these acquisitions, okay? So, Tom, uh, we've been talking about the SolarWinds hack for a while. In fact, this was the top story from 2020, if you can believe it. But guess what? Um, now, SolarWinds is announcing that the number of, number of people who were exploited by the recent sunburst attack may have been a lot less than we were led to believe. In an SEC filing, uh, the Austin, Texas company said that fewer than 100 of its customers were actively exploited in the attack. This is slightly less than the 18,000 that were uh, downloaded the packages and had allegedly been compromised. Uh, SolarWinds CEO Sundakar Ramakrishna released the updated numbers in an effort to correct media reports of the large, large, large numbers from late last year, uh, people like us who were reporting the big number. Tom, uh, what does this mean? Is the number big or little? Well, I likened it this way when I texted a friend of mine. So we infected 18,000 pounds of ground beef with E. coli, but only 100 people got sick. 
is that a good thing? Well, it depends. If you're one of the people who didn't get sick, you're probably still a little upset that you potentially ate something that could be contaminated. And that's where the problem in this story lies. First of all, this wasn't released as a news report. This was released as part of a legal filing that they can be sued for if it's wrong. So chalk one up for burying things in mandated reporting and uh, props to the people who managed to dig this one out. And I get that the SolarWinds CEO is really in damage control mode right now because yeah, let's be frank, this is probably one of the biggest corporate black eyes that people have seen for a long time. So what I take from this news is, oh, 18,000 people downloaded this package, but only a hundred of them were exploited. SolarWinds take is, that means that they were targeted and they were really looking for things. I would say that is true, but it doesn't mean the other 17,900 people wouldn't have been exploited at some point in the near future if this hadn't have been discovered. I think the hundred that they got were the highest profile targets that they were really after. And the rest were on the list to be investigated at some point in the future. So SolarWinds, thank you for at least releasing numbers that we can hang our hat on, but I wouldn't hang my hat on the fact that you're gonna get away from this one scot-free. All right, Stephen, um, Google has announced a new algorithm that can predict drive failures with 98% accuracy. According to a blog post from some of their AI experts, the ad and search giant has millions of hard disk drives that could impact operations when they fail. The team worked on improving their fortune telling capabilities and managed to come up with a software algorithm that could accurately predict when the disks needed to be replaced so that they could be replaced before they failed, which will allow them to move data around a little bit in order to reduce the impacts. The model takes data from a number of different sources, including some of the accounting firms and analytics firms they're working with, as well as all the hard disk manufacturers that they buy from. I believe Seagate was one of the primary ones. And it does give a lot of reporting to the Google IT team so that they can go out and get the disks replaced before they fail and give them an update on, you know, which ones are going to need to be scheduled to be replaced in the future. Um, Stephen, we talk a lot about the applications of AI on the Utilizing AI podcast. Do you feel like this is something that's valuable and maybe would we see this outside of a Mountain View data center sometime soon? Yeah, this is an interesting story because, well, let me clue you guys in on a little bit of storage wisdom. Um, you, you probably have heard of those, like the smart stats that you get off of your drive. And you've probably been panicked about the smart stats or the number of writes or, you know, whatever it is. Um, here's a little clue. They don't work worth a darn. Um, in fact, even when your drive reports that it's failed, it's probably not failed. And, and buried in this story is the fact that Google takes those failed hard drives and does some magic wand waving and sticks them right back into service. The truth is that hard drives are actually incredibly difficult to predict in terms of failure. Uh, our friends over at Backblaze produce an amazing quarterly report of hard drive failure rates. And theirs is another massive estate of lots and lots of hard drive models. And uh, effectively, folks and you know hyperscalers that use you know literally tens of thousands or even millions of hard drives throw up their hands and say, "We have no idea when these things are going to fail." This is kind of cool if it works. Uh, but another kind of interesting thing uh, buried in this story is the fact that uh, this only supports currently two specific models of hard drives. 
Most hyperscalers use a lot of different models of hard drives, uh, or at least a half a dozen or a dozen of them. Um, theoretically, uh, machine learning might be able to pick out some needles and haystacks that we humans might have trouble discerning. Uh, and that's probably a good use of ML. And this thing probably works. But I wouldn't put too much faith in this being able to predict the next time your home computer's desktop hard drive is going to fail, because frankly, that ain't how it works. And that's not what has been delivered here. So I, I love it. I think it's a great application of machine learning. Uh, I love that there's a little bit of a collision between machine learning and hard drives here, uh, if you'll forgive the pun. Uh, but I don't really think that I'm going to get too excited about this result. We have a little breaking news here. After recording this episode, we learned that the VMware Board of Directors has named a new CEO for VMware, replacing Pat Gelsinger, who left to lead Intel earlier this year. The news is that the nod went to Raghu Raghuram, a familiar face in the VMware management ranks, and that Raghu will be taking over along with uh, Sumit Dawan, who's going to be the new president. There was a little bit of a struggle internally between Raghu and Sanjay Poonan, who had also been expected to be on the shortlist for VMware CEO. Now that Raghu's got the jobs, uh, Sanjay apparently is stepping down from VMware to pursue other interests. We'll fill you in more on this situation next week on the Gestalt IT Rundown, but we thought that it would be important to break in and share this news with you today. Now, back to our program. Tom, let's turn our attention now to a couple of more interesting uh, stories and discuss them in a little more detail. The big story this week is all about the frags. No, not the video game frags, but a vulnerability announced on Tuesday that shows that wireless networking equipment is vulnerable to attacks, a specific kind of attack called a fragmentation attack that can cause significant problems. Friend of the show and friend of me and Tom, Ryan Adzuma broke down the attacks as the ability to hide malicious payloads in an unencrypted transmission frames. The receiving client processes the frames as sent because it's not looking for anything malicious in the control. And uh, Adzuma notes that the attacks are highly technical in nature and uh, today require uh, in interaction from users to be fully effective. Uh, but the researchers discovered that the attacks have been under embargo for the past nine months and even wireless companies are scrambling to uh, release patches, even as modern security like WPA3 is vulnerable to the attacks. Tom, this looks like it could be even worse than some of the previous wireless and Wi-Fi attacks that we've seen. Uh, what should we be worried about here? Well, we should be worried about the fact that pretty much anything that runs wirelessly right now is vulnerable to this attack. Part of the reason why you sit on a vulnerability like this for the amount of time that you do is because you want to give the manufacturers of these equipment pieces lead time to patch this vulnerability. Well, the announcement came out about 11 a.m. Pacific time on Tuesday. And so far, all of the announcements that I've heard are, yeah, we might get to that by the end of the summer or good luck because we're never going to patch those particular pieces of hardware, which is particularly egregious when you consider that this goes all the way back to the days of WEP. Yeah, you know that thing that you enabled in like 2004 and you really should turn off? 
I mean, we've talked a lot about the crack vulnerability in WPA2 and how bad that it was that it was basically there for a long time. It just took someone with smarts to exploit it. We talked about the fact that WPA3 was practically under assault as soon as it was released. And when you look at all of the dragon themed exploits that came out for it, I mean, even the researcher that was behind this said, you know, WPA3 has pretty much been tested as much as we can test it. And even it's vulnerable to this. And why? Well, just like any good attacker, when the front door is locked, you don't buy a lockpick set, you look for a window to jump through. And that's basically what they did. By fragmenting your malicious payload and sticking it in frames that are being processed without any kind of scanning, because why would you scan a management frame, and letting it be reassembled on the other side, you've got a perfect entry vector that goes around encryption, that goes around any kind of protections that you might have. Now, the one saving grace is that it is still very technical in nature, and it does require some user interaction to be 100% effective. So right now, you have to know have somebody who knows what they're doing and knows how to attack, and somebody on the other end who's willing to just blindly click on whatever you've sent them. But that doesn't mean that it's going to stay that way forever, because if there's one thing that the exploit community is really good at, it's taking something that's extremely complex and turning it into a VBA tool with crappy music and a big ASCII art background and making it work for people that are basically going to try to exploit you for Bitcoin or something like that. So stay tuned because you're going to need to figure out what you have to do to patch your access points. And as a personal note, if your access point manufacturer is telling you that you're not going to get a patch for your not quite up to date AP, but hey, if you buy a new one, we promise that it's going to be fixed, find the nearest bullhorn and start shouting at them in very loud declarative sentences that this is unacceptable and this needs to be fixed. Just because your hardware is a few years out of date doesn't mean you can't patch it. And if anybody wants reference proof for that, Microsoft is still releasing patches for Windows XP. And that piece of kit is nearly 20 years old. So yeah, this is gonna be a developing story. You know, Like we said, it just came out yesterday. There's a lot that is still unknown about this, and we haven't seen any POCs in the wild yet. Doesn't mean that there isn't, and knowing how fast people around here move, there probably is one by now, but you know, it's just kind of a wait and see approach to see what it's going to entail. Is it going to be as bad as dragon blood or as crack? We don't know, but I don't envy anybody who's going to have to figure out a countermeasure to this anytime soon. Yeah, it's a real, real trouble if this thing ends up being remotely exploitable. But of course, we don't know, and we don't know if it's going to end up needing to have some kind of other interaction to be exploited. And so this could be a big nothing. Isn't that right, Tom? It could be. And, and that's always the hope. I mean, it's like finding some kind of medical condition. You hope that it doesn't become something more serious but you plan for it just in case. And if it does turn out to be the good kind of thing that's not really serious, we just file it in a report and move along. But in IT, you can never hope beyond hope that this thing is gonna be as benign as you want it to be. And of course, the big takeaway here is that no matter what's going on, you just can't trust random data. You have to verify data and validate data and pass everything. And, and I mean, that's pretty well known in uh, all sorts of software development circles, but it seems like that's sort of the root of a lot of exploits, uh, you know, buffer overflows and so on. And uh, this reminds me a lot of those. I, I don't think you're far from wrong. And I think maybe this is the wake up call that people need, which is 
you really need to verify all of the data that you're sent. Even if all you're doing is just checking to make sure that it makes sense or doesn't have any extra payloads in it. Because if this was something that limited to the size of say like a management frame to a very specific you know, piece, then it'd be really easy to stop because any management frame over this size must include data that's not intended, let's just scrap it. But I think that we're, what we're seeing is attacks that are targeting forgotten infrastructure. It's not just breaking in through the window, it's breaking in through the boarded up window on the backside of the property that nobody's seen, for, you know, that has dealt with in the last couple of years. And so, you know, hopefully this is the kind of wake up call that people need. All right, Stephen, a slightly happier announcement coming from our friends over at Big Blue because IBM has a small announcement this week as IBM Think kicks off. Well, okay, maybe it's more of a big announcement about something kind of small. Um, the venerable tech giant has announced the manufacturing of the very first two nanometer chip. If that sounds small, it's because it absolutely is. Most current chip technology is based around a seven nanometer process. IBM is claiming that it has 45% more performance and 75% more power consumption compared to those seven nanometer chips. And they're hoping that that's gonna be a huge value to companies that are hoping to produce small scale hardware. The funny thing though, is that the news is coming from IBM. You know, the company you would not expect to be making breakthroughs in chip manufacturing. You would expect it to be coming from someone like Intel or AMD. But when you analyze the um, report that we'll link to from Anantech, basically they said they built it, but they don't give any details about what it looks like. And they don't give any details about what they're gonna do with it. And based on some of the information that I've seen from people that make ASICs in for networking gear, 10 nanometers is hard enough to build because you have to do all kinds of crazy things to your manufacturing plant. Two nanometers must be a nightmare. But a lot of people are starting to say things about, you know, with IBM, this is more about the form instead of the function. And maybe they're trying to do a breakthrough in the design of the chips. Um, Steven, is this a revolution like people are saying, or is this kind of an evolution that's eventually going to end up butting heads with our friend, Mr. Moore's law? Yeah, this is a interesting story. First, let me take off uh, the table the part that people might think is the interesting part, and that's the fact that this is IBM. It turns out IBM is a leading researcher in advanced uh, process node and semiconductor fabrication technology, and they've been right there for most of the semiconductor advancements for the last couple of decades. So don't be all that surprised that IBM is the ones that are coming up with this one and don't be all that thinking or kind of jumping to any conclusions that this means they're going to compete with TSMC or Global Foundries or Intel or anything. That's not, nothing could be further from the truth. Essentially, this is a part of IBM's, uh, I don't know, the new IBM business where they make discoveries and then license things to other companies to actually exploit them and uh, make money on the patents, which is not a bad business to be in. In fact, it's keeping this research unit in business. So let's not worry about the fact that it's IBM. Now, what we should be getting excited about is the question of whether or not this thing is actually two nanometer. So here's the thing. Let's say that you developed a new uh, process node that had five nanometers of the, as the smallest um, item on the chip. Um, you'd call that five nanometer, wouldn't you? Well, that's pretty much what it looks like this is. But that being said, IBM is using a new technology called gate all around or stacked gate all around, which essentially stacks elements on top of each other 
in order to achieve greater density. And you know what this does is this actually packs more transistors into the same amount of space. In fact, it packs enough transistors into the same amount of space that it's equivalent to two nanometers. So I guess they're calling it two nanometer. But that being said, it's probably not two nanometer. But that being said, probably doesn't matter. Because here's the other thing. Uh, process nodes have not been uh, appropriately defined about as long as Mercedes has been using the wrong number for the size of their engines. In other words, uh, seven nanometer isn't seven nanometer and five nanometer isn't five nanometer and 10 nanometer isn't 10 either. The thing that matters is how dense the transistors are packed into the wafer. And if you look at the various process nodes from the various big companies, specifically Samsung, Intel, and TSMC, what you're gonna find is that one man's 10 nanometer is the equivalent of another man's 16 or seven nanometer. And so it's really, really, really hard to figure out how these things are equivalent. Uh, effectively, the only thing that really matters is how big is the final chip and how much power does it use? And IBM has developed a new technology that will use less power and pack more stuff onto the chip. And uh, the, if you draw the line, it's gonna be looking like it's about two nanometers worth. So let's call it two nanometers. And uh, let's hope that the, this gets picked up by global foundries and we're able to have some cool next generation chips based on this technology. And finally, as Tom mentioned, let's really, really hope that the people that are actually designing the chips can figure out how to use this kind of technology and how to actually design chips that work at this ridiculous new configuration of uh, ultra small uh, you know, components and stacked all around uh, gates. And Stephen, one of the things that kind of had me curious is that we've always figured that eventually we're gonna hit a point where we can't shrink the chips anymore. And one of the things that I've seen in my research is we're just going to eventually reach the limit of what copper is capable of doing um, with regard to uh, electrical generation and effectively heat capacity. I mean, we already have to put 10 pounds of copper on top of a wafer in order to keep it cool enough to be able to use it without setting our house on fire. Do you feel like two nanometers is, a, is effectively as small as we're going to be able to get before we go to something like, I don't know, silicon photonics? I, I, there's no way I'm going to weigh in on that one. I will say this, there is certainly going to be a limit. And um, I will also say we are certainly going to find a way to cleverly get around that limit and continue to make more and more stuff. Um, for example, um, we're already, we reached the limit of frequency uh, when we're putting chips out there. I mean, you really can't have chips faster than about five gigahertz. And so what did we do? We added more cores and now we've got, uh, you know, multi-processing cores and uh, many, many, many cores, uh, you know, 96 cores, 128 cores on a chip. And uh, the same thing happened in NAND flash. Uh, you know, we couldn't pack things in anymore. So we went 3D and now 3D NAND and we've got TLC. Uh, I think that's pretty much gonna happen here as well is that we're gonna find some clever things. Like for example, using five nanometer process and gate all around to create the equivalent of two nanometer, even though it's not two. So um, I'm not going to go on record as saying that this, that we've reached a limit or we're going to reach a limit. I think we're going to be, I think we're clever enough monkeys that we're going to find our way around it. Speaking of clever monkeys, Tom, uh, it's been a tough week if those monkeys operate fuel pipelines. The 5,500 mile long colonial pipeline that supplies fuel to most of the U.S. East Coast 
hey, wait a second, that's where I am, has been temporarily shut down because of a cyber attack. The group that claimed responsibility is named Darkseid, and no, it's not the DC villain, and it's based in Eastern Europe. In a statement, they've distanced themselves from the damage being caused and claimed that one of their customers launched the attack and that they were just in the business of making money, selling guns, and, oh, I mean, uh, hacking tools to make it happen. Uh, Biden has not been all that impressed by their claims and has apparently uh, promised to disassemble and prosecute Darkseid for the attack, as well as all those responsible for kicking it off. And, of course, we're also worried about uh, when that pipeline is going to come back online and what kind of fuel shortage we're going to have as a result. Uh, Tom, you've talked about critical infrastructure attacks in the past. What do you think about this one? Boy, I would not want to be one of Darkseid's people right now because uh, that half-hearted apology that they released of don't blame us, we just built the tools and then sold them to people who have no scruples. Um, that was basically their last attempt to avoid getting screwed by the Cyber Command people for probably the rest of their lives. Because it's one thing if you're going to hack Siemens. It's another thing if you're going to hack a hospital, which I consider to be on the verge of something you really shouldn't do. But you just messed with a strategic part of the United States. You know what that means? Military can get involved. The NSA can get involved. The people who you really don't want gunning for you can get involved. Now, look at the responses that we've seen so far from certain hacks. You want to hack SolarWinds and, and infect 18,000 people, or maybe 100, who knows? Okay, no problem. We'll handle the heat. Not a big deal. Suddenly, you hack a pipeline or someone you sold to hacks a pipeline, boy, you want to watch people distance themselves from you real quick. This is like an Amish shunning. Like they are seriously turning their backs on everything. And the reason why is because they know what's coming. They absolutely know that they are going to get harassed, exploited, exposed, shut down, arrested, and thrown in a hole. And then they're going to throw away the hole. This is like what happens when Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, and the rest of the Justice League go after Darkseid. They're not going to stop until they win. And that's why they're running away as fast as possible. Not to mention the fact that, like you mentioned, we still don't know when that pipeline is going to come back up. We're already hearing reports, even today, of possible fuel shortages for things like gasoline. Could you imagine how bad this would have been if it would have been in the wintertime when most of the East Coast uses things like heating oil? Would have been under in, uh, under some kind of problem. Yeah, this is a big issue. And I've written about this years and years ago because it used to be that even nation states kind of behaved themselves. Yeah, we'll screw up your nuclear plant because we don't want you to build any nuclear bombs, but we're not going to hack your hospitals. We're not going to hack your hydroelectric dams. And we're not going to hack any kind of infrastructure that can get people killed. Well, guess what? In the last 12 months, we've seen that some people who probably aren't affiliated with nation states officially, but might have some kind of agreement with them to do stuff on occasion, don't have the same scruples as those folks. And when the gloves come off, you're not going to like what happens because based on Darkseid's reaction, I genuinely don't think they wanted this to go down. They do not want this much heat on them. And now it's here and you're going to have to deal with it. And it kind of almost feels like maybe what they were saying was this wasn't our target. We didn't want this much damage to happen, but boy, look how good we are at our jobs. I think it's important to note too that Darkseid wasn't just the maker of ransomware tools. They advertised as effectively ransomware as a service. 
and they had they had a pitch. They uh, promised that not only was their ransomware, you know, effective against all sorts of targets, but that they could guarantee that it would get lots and lots of media attention, which would push those targets to pay up. Um, this is, uh, well, it's a really terrible business model and um, by really terrible people. And those really terrible people, as you said, are just about to find out what happens when you essentially create evil as a service and then unleash it on the world and say, oh no, somebody did evil with it. Well, somebody did evil with it. So yeah, I imagine that they'll probably uh, get shut down really quick. But on the other hand, Darkseid has really only existed for like a year or something. So whatever. I mean, honestly, um, Darkseid is in the Zack Snyder cut of uh, Dawn of Justice longer than it is on the planet, I think. I think what you're going to find is that they are going to create an apocalypse that will show everyone else, do not mess with the U.S. government because they need to send a statement. And we've talked about this even on the on-premise IT roundtable should nation states get involved in preventing hacking? And it always comes down to a question of, well, how much do you think the government should be in, in, involved in it? And the answer is if they're shutting down critical infrastructure, all bets are off because even if they're not officially involved, I promise you Cyber Command is giving resources to Symantec, Microsoft and every other company on the planet that they can find. So even if they get to keep their fingers out of this one, their fingerprints are all over it. That'll just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. We want to thank you for tuning in. You can find us every week at 1230 Eastern Time on a Wednesday, hump day, here on our YouTube channel, or if you're watching this with our show notes on our website at gestaltit.com. Stephen, what have you got going on this week? Well, honestly, I'm preparing for our AI field day this week, uh, coming up in just a couple of weeks now. We've got a bunch of great AI experts and a bunch of companies in there. Uh, including some familiar names that we may have mentioned here on the uh, rundown in the last few weeks, as well as some surprising new companies. So stay tuned for that, uh, May 27th and 28th. But Tom, I think you've got something much, much uh, sooner happening, right? I do. In fact, we're right in the middle of networking field day right now, where you've got a great presentation that's just wrapping up from Aruba, and we have more great content headed your way from companies like Intel, Arcus, and Juniper. If you want to go over to our website at techfieldday.com, click on the link for Networking Field Day, and you can see the lineup, you can see the schedule, and you can see the people who are in the room virtually with me, um, kind of learning a little bit about what's going on in the world of networking. Um, it's exciting because networking is exciting, I hope, and uh, we can't wait to see your take on it. And uh, please make sure you stay tuned to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash techfieldday for the recorded videos. and um, gestaltit.com is your place to check out all coverage from the event. We'll make sure that we link to as much of it as possible. And if you want to check out our YouTube channel, it's youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo for episodes of The Rundown, the On-Premise IT Roundtable, and many other great video series that we put out. But for now, for Stephen Foskett, for Tom Hollingsworth, and the rest of the Gestalt IT community, thank you very much for tuning in. We will be back next week with more great news, and we hope that you have an awesome day. Thank you.